Well, here we are at the end of chapter 2, and um, Paul is going to begin kind of an internal new theme uh, in his letter here. Remember, he's been talking about conflict. He's been talking about having the mind of Christ in the midst of it. He's been talking about Jesus emptying himself, laying himself low. And now he's going to talk about the measure of success. We all have a measure of success in our own minds. Uh, We have our own measure of success that affects our emotions. What Paul is going to say to us here in this text and continue on in chapter 3 is, depending what your measure of success is, that will determine your level of joy and satisfaction in life. It's directly correlated. And before we look at the last part of chapter 2, I'd like to read a companion text, very familiar text from Matthew chapter 25. Jesus is near the end of his earthly ministry, and he tells this parable. For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to the other two, and to another one, each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also the one who had two talents made two talents more, but he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over little. I will set you over much. Enter in the joy of your master. And he also who had two talents, came forward, saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here I've made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also, who had received one talent, came forward, saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow, and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reaped where I had not sown and gathered where I had scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested your money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was mine with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has ten talents." For everyone who has will more be given, he and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Philippians chapter 2 beginning in verse 19. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served me in the gospel. 
I hope therefore to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. I've thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been in distress because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill near death, but God had mercy upon him. And not only on him, but also on me, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am more eager to send him, therefore, that you may receive or may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy, and honor such men. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Years ago, I was in a class taught by R.C. Sproul, and he was telling the story about um, the need for effective communication. He told a story about being in the Netherlands when he was studying at the Free University there in Amsterdam. It was a Saturday afternoon, and he was responsible for watching his two-year-old daughter But like many men, he thought he could multitask, and so he took his daughter outside and put her right on the stoop by the door, and he said, I'm going to go right across the yard and do some weeding in that flower bed. Now listen to me. I want you to stay on the stoop. Do you understand me? The little girl, two and a half, nodded and says, yes, Daddy. Within two minutes, she was right next to him digging in the dirt. So he picked her up, took her back, and said, now listen to me. I told you to stay on the stoop. You stay here. Daddy's going to go and do some more weeding, and he'll come back. Do you understand? She nodded. Within two minutes, she's digging in the dirt. So he spanks her. He picks her up. She's crying. He said, I told you to stay on the stoop. As soon as he got her to that place, she looked him in the eye and said, Daddy, what's a stoop? And R.C. said, you're looking at him. Years ago, a woman went to a French author who was very well known. This author thought that he could determine the success level of any person based on their writing. And so the woman handed him a writing sample from a young boy and said, analyze this. He took the writing sample and he looked at it carefully and he analyzed. He could see that no letter was the same shape, all different sizes. It wasn't written across the imaginary line. It went up and down and up and down. And finally he looked the woman in the eye and said, madam, is this your son? She said, no. He said, well, is this young man related to you? She said, no. He said, well, I need to tell you that this young man will never amount to anything. He is lazy, and he's probably very stupid. The woman said, that's what I thought. It was your writing 40 years ago. 
Someone has said that today there are few idols greater than success and achievement. For most of us, that's the greatest idol that we know, success and achievement. Because if you get it, you'll be at the top of your game. You'll rise above the hoi polloi. You'll rise above those who can't achieve what you've achieved. You will be supreme. And that's what most of us are aiming at. But not Paul. According to Paul, whatever you measure success as being, that measurement will determine the level of joy and satisfaction you have in life. Thirty-five years ago, I I worked in Washington, D.C. for a man who was the descendant of John Muir. If you know your uh, early American history, the 19th century, you'll know that John Muir, his grandfather, was a Scottish-American conservationist. He was the one that founded... Yosemite National Park in California. He was the one that founded Glacier National Park in Alaska. And this John Muir, his grandfather, was a mover and shaker with all of those in, in America, the American uh, uh, century, 19th and early 20th century. Someone once asked John Muir, how would you compare yourself to E.H. Harriman. You may remember that name. E.H. Harriman, he was the president of the Union Pacific Railroad. John Muir said this, I have all the money I want. He hasn't. So what's your definition of success? Is it financial security? Is it some level of privilege? Is it some achievement in your status group? Is it your pedigree? Is it your position? Is it your family? Whatever you determine your measure of success to be, that will be the same measure by which you determine your joy and satisfaction in life. And that's why Paul beginning here at the end of chapter 2, is going to make it perfectly clear that his definition differs from everyone else in the world. You see, Paul understands God's definition of success. And over the next chapter and a half, he's going to talk about it. But here in these verses, 19 to 30, he gives us a number of aspects of godly success. And so let's dig in. First of all, notice that according to Paul, success always begins with compassion. Look at verse 20. Speaking of his son in the faith, Timothy, Paul says, I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. Now you've got to get the scene. He's just been talking about their complaining, their grumbling, their conflict. He's just told them that the telltale sign of the Holy Spirit working in them will be this, that they'll be more concerned about others than themselves. You get that? 
the telltale sign of the Holy Spirit working in you is that you will be much more interested in the concerns and needs of others than in yourself. Claire Booth Luce was a woman of means. She was an author, playwright. She was a Republican. She campaigned for every Republican presidential candidate from Wendell Wilkie to Ronald Reagan. She was a member of Congress. She was the ambassador to Italy in the Eisenhower administration. She was a very famous woman. And yet at age 75, she was asked if she had any regrets in her life. You know what she said? She said, yes, I do. I should have been a better, kinder, more tolerant person. Sometimes I wake up in the middle of the night and I remember my girlfriend who had a brain tumor. She called me three times to come to her bedside and I was too busy. And when she died, I was profoundly ashamed. And I remember it as though it were yesterday. And yet it was 56 years ago. I mean, think of that. Claire Booth Luce wakes up in the middle of the night remembering that at 19 she failed to show compassion to her girlfriend. Paul's in Rome. He wants to be in Philippi. Why does he want to be in Philippi? Because he's suffering with them. He wants to be there with his brothers and sisters. He wants to be the face of Christ for them. And he knows he can't. So he determines that he will send a substitute, one who has the same degree of compassion for them that he himself has. Look at what he says in verse 19. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon. You know the interesting thing is, nowhere in all of Paul's writings does he use that phrase. I hope in the Lord Jesus. When he's talking about a trip, he never uses that expression. Why does he use it here? Because he knows that Jesus is fundamentally the man of sorrows, a man of compassion. And he knows that he is committing his life and Timothy's life into the hands of the compassionate God. And so what he's saying is, I'm planning to send Timothy to you because he's a man of compassion and I'm resting that hope on Jesus who is total compassion. You see, he can't travel to them, but he's going to send a substitute that's just like him. I love what one translator says. He has Paul saying this, I have no one else who is of heart and soul with me but him. He's of heart and soul with me. That's why I want to send him to you. According to Paul, the first definition, the first element of the definition to success is being able to suffer alongside someone else. Second, Paul says not only is compassion a part of success, but also consistency is. Look at verse 22. But you know Timothy's proven worth. How as a son with a father, he has served me in the gospel. Now look what Paul's doing. 
He's putting Timothy above all of the other believers that he knows in Rome. And he wants to send this one Timothy to those that he loves in Philippi. I love what J.B. Phillips, the way he renders this verse in his paraphrase. All others seem to be wrapped up in their own affairs and do not care for the business of Jesus Christ, but Timothy does. All others seem to be wrapped up in their own affairs. No one but him seems to really care about the business of Jesus Christ. Now, this isn't a complaint. This is a sadness. What Paul is saying is, there's no one else that I know that can dispense consistently the grace of the Lord Jesus but Timothy. He alone is that consistent. Now remember what we know about Timothy. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, we know that he's young. In the very next chapter, 1 Timothy chapter 5, we know that he is physically weak. In 1 Corinthians chapter 16, we learn that he is very patient. In the book of Acts, we see that Timothy accompanies Paul through all of his missionary journeys. He's by his side. He doesn't desert him in the midst of beatings, shipwrecks, deprivation of all kind. He is totally consistent to stay by Paul's side. You know what someone has said, the problem with life is it's so daily. I mean, it's day after day after day. It's one step ahead of the other. Remember the old adage, yard by yard, life is hard, inch by inch, it's a cinch. Timothy knows that. Timothy has a proven record, inch by inch, he sticks by Paul. He's that consistent. And the reason Paul wants to send him to Philippi is not because he's strong, he isn't, not because of his vision, but because he is willing to stick it out day after day through thick and thin. When you look at biblical success, you've got to see compassion, you've got to see consistency. And then third, Paul says, success involves cooperation. Look at verse 25. I thought it necessary to send you Epaphroditus, my brother, my fellow worker, my fellow soldier, and your messenger, and the minister to my need. In 1992, Jimmy Johnson became the coach of the Dallas Cowboys. And there was an article written within a couple of months of his beginning his tenure there, and the article was entitled, The NFL's Hungriest Coach. The writer says, football for Jimmy Johnson is 11 months a year. And if by some way he could make it 12 or 13 months, he would have done it. He is unique in the NFL. He holds four mini camps in the summer. Three of them are voluntary, and yet players who don't come to the voluntary minicamp don't play. How badly did he want the job? He divorced his wife to devote full time to the job. 
When asked about it, he said, I've put myself in a position where very few things are important to me. My first priority is football. My second priority are my two sons. I have no third priority. And he's considered successful. Paul wouldn't say he's successful. Look how he describes Epaphroditus. Brother, fellow worker, fellow soldier to him. Three separate relationships. And yet what Paul is saying is, this man is part of every one of them. You know, for Jimmy Johnson and every NFL coach, success is defined by competitive winning. Paul would define success by cooperative love. Because the win has already been achieved by Jesus. Victory is not beating the next guy. Victory is loving the next guy. And supporting him. Because according to Paul and according to God, there is no success. If you're an isolationist. If there's no cooperation between you and others. Then fourth, success is defined by commitment. Look at verses 26 and 27. For he has been longing for, all, for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but also on me, lest I should have had sorrow upon sorrow. Now, Epaphroditus is from Philippi. He's a Philippian. According to the book of Acts, the church in Philippi took up an offering, a number of other goods, and they asked Epaphroditus to travel to Rome. It's 800 miles away. It's thought that it took him over six weeks. And on the way there, many biblical commentators said he got a virus. And when he comes to Rome, he's deathly ill. And it almost kills him. But the amazing thing is, he doesn't turn back. He becomes ill, and yet he he doesn't go back to Philippi. He continues on his journey. And when he arrives in Rome, Paul says, not only does he deliver the money and the goods to me, but he stays and he ministers to me, even in the midst of his sickness. Now, why would he do that? Why would Epaphroditus do that? Because Paul is his brother. Paul is his fellow worker. Paul is a fellow soldier. Somebody has said, success is paying the price. And when success is defined as compassion and consistency and cooperation and commitment, that statement is absolutely correct. But there's only one, one way that you can pay that price. And that's by leaning all the way into Jesus. And then fifth and finally, according to Paul in this text, success is defined by courage. Look at verse 29. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men. Why honor such men? I get the joy part. 
He's alive. He's done his job. But why honor him? There's only one reason. What Paul is saying is honor him because in him you see Jesus. It's one of the texts that's ripped out of context and made a pretext. Matthew chapter 25. You know the story. I read it. The parable of the talents. The master goes away on a long journey. Before he leaves, he assembles three of his servants. To one he gives five talents, another he gives two, another he gives one. And Jesus says when he returns, two of those servants have been successful. They come to their master and they say, you gave me five, here's five more. You gave me two, here's two more. And Jesus says to each one of them, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over little, I'll put you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Now why does Jesus say that? Why does the master say that? What is it that made them successful? You know, most of the time you're at a memorial service, a eulogy, you'll hear a Christian say that. The Lord is saying to him, well done, good and faithful servant. As soon as he passed from this life to the next, well done, good and faithful servant. We hear that. And yet that's not what Jesus is talking about in this parable. What do they mean when they say that at a memorial service? He's a good father, faithful husband, good provider, well thought of in the community. That's not what Jesus is talking about. He's talking about taking a risk with the master's wealth. He's talking about the courage to take what the master gives you and risk it all for him. He's talking about doing for the master what the master would do for himself. And the truth is, in all of human history, there's only been one absolutely, completely good and faithful servant, and his name is Jesus. Paul knows it. That's why he says, have this mind in you that was also in Christ Jesus. You see, the reason he tells the Philippians to honor Epaphroditus is because the signature of Jesus is all over him. Think of it. Instead of regarding his own life, he's willing to lay his life down for another. Instead of valuing his own comfort, he's willing to give up his own comfort for others. Instead of gambling to save his own life, he gambles to save the life of another. You see, the world believes that success means rising above everyone else. God says it's just the opposite. Success is laying yourself down so that you are below others, so that you're there from that position, you're able to lift them up. How can we get it so wrong? We're Christians. How can we buy into that worldly crap? How can we define success as beating someone else or achieving something more than another? 
When Jesus says success means trusting me and laying yourself all the way down. You know how we can miss it? Because we ignore the mind of Christ. The two-year-old's crying. She says, Daddy, what's a stoop? And R.C. looks her in the eye and says, you're looking at him. Have you come to the place where you're able to say that to yourself? What's a stoop? (laughs) You're looking at him. Where you can say that success is not what I gain. Success is what I'm willing to lose. It's only after you do that. It's only after you're committed to that that your definition of success changes and your joy and satisfaction in life explodes because it isn't based on what you get. It's based on what you give. You know, a lot of you are going through tough times. Physically. Emotionally. Some of you even spiritual. And the tendency in a tough time is to look at yourself. To feel sorry for yourself. And then to look at others who, in your judgment, have it better. And wish that you were just like them. God's given us a great blessing just as he gave to Epaphroditus. He is stripping things like our definition of success away from us so that we take on his mind. And in the midst of our pain, in the midst of our failure, in the midst of our struggle, we can show to others the one they need to see. He's Jesus. He's Lord. Aren't you glad? Think about that. Amen.